Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. Oil companies have known about the dangers of burning fossil fuels for longer than you may think. I found this transcript, Edward Teller telling the heads of the oil industry in 1959 that CO2 emissions could submerge New York City. Since 1970, the EPA has been protecting our health and safety by enforcing regulations on the industry. But under the Trump administration, things have changed. Suddenly we had the people we were regulating were now the regulators. And the agency no longer seems committed to its founding mission. They don't have a right to misinterpret the law. They don't have a right to take science facts off the webpage as if issues like climate change didn't exist. The EPA, then and now. Up next on Climate One. Welcome to Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Devin Strolovich. Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded at the Commonwealth Club of California and hosted by Greg Dalton. Founded in 1970 under President Nixon, the Environmental Protection Agency was created to protect Americans' health and environment by writing and enforcing regulations based on laws passed by Congress. While the agency enjoyed bipartisan support for decades, the last nine years have seen a decline in support from congressional Republicans, and the Trump administration has been largely hostile to its mission. EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt sued the agency more than a dozen times when he was Oklahoma Attorney General. Pruitt's EPA has downplayed science and scrubbed mentions of climate change from its website. Gina McCarthy served as EPA Administrator under President Obama from 2013 to 2017. Following her tenure, she took a position at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. Greg Dalton spoke to her about climate change and today's EPA. What's the biggest impact of the Trump administration? What's the biggest damage they've done in terms of environmental protections? Well, you know, it's not over yet. Um, but what we, what I'm most worried about uh, is not uh, not really the rollbacks that they've announced, repealing the clean power plan and and other initiatives. Uh, they're disappointing, uh, but I just don't think that they're going to be successful. I think we know very well that we followed the science and the law, and we developed the facts, and we did the administrative process. And I also know factually they're not engaging the career staff who are so important to doing those well. And so I'm pretty confident that we did it right and that any attempt to undo it is going to be unsuccessful and lengthy in the courts. I guess what I most worry about is the attack on science and the budget challenges that they're putting EPA under. Those are systemic things that go well beyond this year and well beyond the ability for the agency to easily bounce back. You know, their budget cuts are really not just targeting EPA in terms of potentially cutting it by a third, but they're targeting the science. They're targeting our scientists. And EPA is a science agency. That's what we do for a living. You know, and I think it's, that's a serious threat um, that I think we see go we goes well beyond EPA in this administration. They simply don't want science that they have to deal with. 
and some of the scientific advisory bodies have been disbanded or, or the, the composition has changed. What kind of lasting impact does that have as if an advisory body goes away? Can you put it back together in a few years? I think you, you can, but, you know, you've sent some terrible signals to the young scientists in the agency about whether or not they'd like to come into public service at a much lower salary, or should they go into the private sector? What would you do if this were the sort of the foundation that you that you're that they're creating when you want to go into public service? They are, you know, profoundly changing the way that that these types of changes in administration are normally handled and look at looked at. You have a right to different policies. Policies. You do. I mean, that is, you, you win an election, you get to do things the way that you think is best. But they don't have a right to misinterpret the law. They don't have a right to take science facts off the webpage as if issues like climate change didn't exist. They don't have a right to shortcut the administrative process. And you don't have a right as an administrator to go into an agency and not embrace the mission of that agency. And clearly at EPA, we do not have an administrator that doesn't really fully embrace the actual mission of the agency to protect public health and the environment. I've read that up to half of EPA uh, employees are eligible for retirement in the next five years. So what could what is that prospect? Does that mean that we've, we've seen that within other areas, NASA, air traffic controllers, there's a big demographic boom that retires at a certain time. But what could that do to the agency? Are, are people going to just give up and walk away? Well, you know, in honesty, I think the administration is is really uh, trying to set the stage to make it difficult for the employees to continue at a high level with the work that they're very good at and have a history of being successful in, which is to continue to progress in, in the mission of the agency. And so it's, they've made it very challenging. Uh, so my if understanding the EPA retires, is, they're okay with that? <laughs> well, I, th I actually think if you look at, at recent web pages, the, one of the goals of this administrator is actually to lower the number of staff in the agency. There's nothing there that says I'd like to protect public health better and save lives and make people less sick from air pollution and other challenges that we know. Every administrator before that, including the Republican administrators, are all very concerned, is not really the central tenet that is guiding the decision making. So we know we're losing staff, upper level career staff who have a history there. I can remember in particular one of them left and, and all she really said was I, I realized I had become irrelevant. That was the saddest sort of remark that I had heard. It wasn't out of bitterness. It was out of, out of really serious disappointment that the history of knowledge that our scientists have accrued, their ability to understand the law, understand its history, understand its policy implications, their ability to adapt to changes in the world and continue to make progress moving forward, all those abilities are at risk from being lost in terms of the decision-making of, of what is one of the most successful public health agencies that's ever been created. And that, to me, is, is not just disappointing, but it should be frightening to people, frankly. It should make them sit up and take notice. Not that changes right away will result, but over the long haul, just think about the success of EPA. Think about what the pollution looked like in the 60s. And is that really the back-to-basics agenda that, that any of us want to support? You know, I've worked for six governors. Five of them were Republicans, including Mitt Romney. I never went backwards. They never asked me to go backwards. They always had their eye on clean air and clean water and clean land. And climate change is no different, except that it threatens the ability to maintain all of those things. It threatens the future of our kids. Let's get real here and embrace the science and develop the technologies and invest in the innovations that we need to continue to make progress moving forward. That's what EPA would do under a leader that embraced its mission.
Mitt Romney's said to be considering a, a Senate run from Utah, a coal state. Knowing what you know, having worked for him when he was governor of Massachusetts, what kind of senator would Mitt Romney be on EPA and climate? Well, one thing about uh, Governor Romney is, um, I would say, is I, I enjoyed working for him. I worked for him for, I don't know, maybe a couple of years. Um, I had a great opportunity to move to Connecticut. Um, I can't tell you that I agreed with every decision he made from that point on. He certainly um, moved forward with a climate action plan that I helped design, and it was a, it was a pretty solid, aggressive plan. But even then, he caveated his uh, cover letter to that plan by saying it's a no regrets policy. These are all good because they were. They were all opportunities to save costs through energy efficiency and other things. Uh, and he caveated it by saying, but I'm not sure about the science. And I think we saw him, you know, change some opinions over time, which is not unlike any politician. Um, but, you know, I, like, like many Republicans, I don't think that they want to breathe dirty air. I don't think they want to drink contaminated water any more than their constituents do. And the funny thing is that while uh, the Republicans seem to have as a platform a, a get rid of EPA um, goal, uh, you get, I got lots of calls from Republicans when their local constituents were threatened. Uh, and I think we'll continue to see that. So while there's challenges, uh, we will weather those challenges. You know, we, this is hopefully, you know, a, a limited time when people have forgotten the importance of that mission and how important it is to move it forward. Uh, but I'm not going to get disappointed, and I am far from being hopeless. Well, I'm sorry. Many people think I'm hopeless, but I am hopeful. <laughs> Uh, offshore oil drilling has yeah. been in the news a lot, and uh, Californians are opposed to it, and a lot of states are opposed to it. Uh, but when we say we don't want to drill off this coast or that coast, isn't that really just nimbyism, the saying, well, go drill in Venezuela or Nigeria, where the environmental regulations are not as strong as they are in the United States? So isn't it, in some sense, better to drill here because it'll happen more responsibly and cleaner? Well, that's hard for me to believe at the, at this stage. But you know, frankly, we we all know that that uh, there are challenges with drilling in the ocean. I only need to say two letters, B and P, uh, for you to, to to think about that. And and really, this brings up one of the most fascinating things, is that this administration, um, at they was at the same time as they were proposing to cut down some of our beautiful. Um, protected natural lands, um, they announced that they were not going to be moving forward or they were going to be repealing the protections that the bipartisan committee that looked at the Deepwater Horizon disaster had said to put in place that provided some technical measures that would eliminate some of the causes of the BP oil spill. And they decided they were not going to move those forward. I mean, they were things like make sure you have all of these uh, protections technically, but an independent person comes in to look at whether or not you're safely operating. Things that any business would do that had an opportunity for the disaster that we saw before. So it's not just a given that these things are done well and safely. And frankly, for an administration that says they want to take away authorities of the federal government and shift it toward states, to suggest that they should unilaterally across this country say that it's open season for oil drilling off of our coasts is contrary to states' rights, if that's really what your goal is. So you think it's better to drill, if we have to drill, get it from the United States, better to do it on land than offshore? Well, there's two things, I think. One is I'm not sure we have to drill. <laughs> right now, we, we are essentially moving forward in the most cost-effective way we can to deliver clean energy to people. And clean energy happens in the marketplace to be the most successful and cost-effective strategy. So if you really want to get real about giving people what they want, which is low energy cost, and protecting people from hazards associated with climate change and from disasters like the BP oil spill, then start thinking about how you 
move renewables into the system more cost effectively. And that's probably the better strategy than drill baby drill. That has not worked and it won't work. And it really doesn't recognize our absolute responsibility to move towards a low carbon future. And that's the marketplace is doing that. Some of the cheapest power ever is now happening. Solar power, et cetera. It's beating coal. It's beating natural gas, beating nuclear. The market is If they, If government that. at this point just stays out of it, <laughs> we are absolutely moving towards a low carbon future. And the interesting thing is that as this federal government has divested itself in thinking about climate and moving forward to protect our public health and the environment, you see cities moving forward to do this. You see you know, businesses moving forward to do this. You st see states well beyond California who still remains in a significant leadership position. They're stepping it up. And, you know, frankly, it doesn't surprise me because in the environmental world, we didn't get federal action on climate change until the Obama administration. And think how long the states were in the game. So it's grassroots organizing that that's matters. So when people start worrying about what's going on in the federal level, I tell them, you know, I, I, it worries me as well, but I'm not going to get discouraged because I know where the real action is. And if cities and states in the business community continues to embrace this challenge, all the federal government needs to do is step aside, which is exactly what they're doing. You're listening to a Climate One conversation with former EPA Administrator Gina McCarthy. Coming up, we'll hear more of that conversation and Greg Dalton will talk to a recently retired EPA staff scientist who describes some of the change happening inside the agency. It was almost a don't do your job. Put on your cloaks of invisibility and back off. That's up next when Climate One continues. You're listening to Climate One. Let's get back to Greg Dalton's conversation with former EPA administrator Gina McCarthy. A lot of companies are embracing sustainability. It makes good sense for their bottom line. Their employees want it. Their customers want it. But the auto industry was one of the first after the 2016 election to say, we want to reduce the fuel efficiency standards. Uh, that was one of the centerpiece accomplishments of the Obama administration on climate. Uh, how much at risk is there for reducing auto efficiency standards, getting to 55 miles a gallon? Well, I think the fact that we have a system that sets regulations at the federal level and then also provides an opportunity in California to set standards has been what has allowed us to move forward to get more fuel-efficient vehicles. It seems clear to me that our auto companies um, did not have the foresight to understand that consumers want fuel-efficient vehicles. And so, so they were on the verge of bankruptcy before they really were brought to the table to get more serious about looking at cars of the future instead of trying to continue to advertise the gas guzzlers of the past. Yeah, they, they agreed to those uh, increased standards sure after ba the taxpayers bailed them out. It, they were going bankrupt. And frankly, all that was being requested of them was to use currently available technology to sell cars that people in the United States of America might want to buy, which seems pretty fundamental to getting out of a bankruptcy. And they've done very well for themselves. And I realize that, that, that they went in and they asked for all of these standards to be re-looked at. But I think they're going to have to make the case as to why they can't achieve these standards with already known and pretty solid technology moving forward. You know, before I left the administration, I made a decision that we didn't need to relook at these standards. Um, and they certainly want to challenge that, but I did it because we had done a thorough look at the technology. And what that said to me uh, when you look at it, and that's the conclusion of our technical staff and our scientists, was that the technology was available today and even less expensive for them to achieve the kind of reductions that were being asked of them. You know, our automakers, I think, are beginning to recognize something, and whether they admit it or not, I don't know. But they're not setting the market for cars in the world anymore. 
you know, China is going to be setting that market. And there's been clear signals from both the EU about their intent to ban the internal combustion engine in, in the Ford by 19, I'm sorry, by 2040. Mm-hmm. And also China is considering the same thing. And even visits from the CEO of General Motors didn't change their mind. And so if 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 they want to step India aside, too. India as well, you know, they they know that the world is changing. And what they really uh, have to do is instead of looking at whether or not they can achieve these standards, they need to look at the direction the world is heading and they need to maintain our place as a leader in that world. I read something that there was about 90, new, 90 million new cars hit the road last year. Two million of those had a plug. So electric cars growing, but still a tiny percentage of the market. And so people are still, there's lots of choices now. Electric cars are on the market. There's 20-some models, but there's still a small percentage. Gas is still king. Yeah, there's, there's no question about it, which I, th- I think is why the, the EU went to 2040. But the handwriting is, is on the wall, and the infrastructure is being constructed, even outside of California. You know, that's probably the only good thing that came out of the Volkswagen uh, fiasco. Uh, was that that working together, we reached a settlement that actually moved forward to significantly advance funding for infrastructure across the United States. And I think the challenge for us is, is to get our car companies to put as many advertisements for electric vehicles as they do for trucks. When we do that, Change will happen in this country. Well, they make more money on trucks. Yeah, well, then they're going to have to probably recognize that they're going to seed the car market to companies like BYD in in China. When they start competing here in the EU, they have actually right now really good technology to be able to sell. And our car companies, I I just hope they recognize that and, and realize that Regulations aren't driving their market. Right now, uh, the other countries who are investing in a low-carbon future are actually going to drive that market. And if they want to be competitive, they have a lot more to worry about than regulatory standards. Is the world on target to meet the Paris goals? Is the world on target? It does not look like it. Uh, but the Paris, you know, one of the, the great parts about the Paris Agreement wasn't just that it got everybody to the table, well, now almost everybody, um, but it also uh, understood that it would need to be adjusted over time. You know, they'd need to put in plans, we'd need to see how they worked. You know, I think we're, we're not off to an aggressive start, uh, but, but countries are still at the table and they're still rolling up their sleeves. You know, one of the things that the United States really pushed for in the Paris Agreement was something called the Capacity Building Fund, which means that now that the developing world is really going to engage itself, which it needs to, because the developing world will soon be the majority of of, uh, greenhouse gases being emitted will come from the developing world. Um, we need to help support those efforts in other countries to develop plans that allow them uh, to do what we have done, which is really to recognize that there are some significant benefits to moving towards carbon reductions and to leapfrog over some of the older technology choices that no longer provide as clean a world and as, as many protections of public health as, as, as we have used in the past. So hopefully we'll, we'll have an ability to catch up, but there is no question that the challenge of climate change remains daunting. But there's very little appetite now for rich countries to pay poor countries to help clean up the problem that the rich countries created. Well, <laughs> well, he, this is one of the reasons why I'm at the Harvard School of Public Health, right? Um, because I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, the developing world wants to get people out of poverty as China has been working, and they want to then move towards a much more stable economic footing for everybody. I mean, like anybody else would. So here's the challenge. You can't go in and say, well, excuse me, it, let's just look at carbon pollution that the developed world has created as a problem and help us fix that. 
I think there's a way to do this, though, because if you look at how the developing world is, is actually moving forward, everybody is moving to urban areas. The air quality in those urban areas looks very much like the air quality in Los Angeles a long time ago, or Pittsfield, or Tulsa, Oklahoma. We learned then that you can't expect people to think that the economy is great if they are choking on poor air quality. So what if we did this? What if we, instead of going over to them and saying, okay, let's talk climate change, why don't we let's talk air pollution? Actually, health. carbon yeah. pollution the health is... health frame, not the environmental frame. Absolutely. But if you do that, you will allow them to continue their efforts to move people out of poverty. You will save lives. You will empower those communities, and they'll demand the same kind of future that we're demanding. They will want to see it. And every time you reduce air pollution, you are taking carbon with it. So I think instead of thinking about how carbon pollution reductions are bringing health benefits, we ought to drive in the developing world health benefits that are bringing carbon co-benefits. There's a way we can do this. And, but you're absolutely right. The developed countries need to provide the assistance for the developing world to engage and to see a future for themselves that is just as bright with strong economies as we've had in the past. Former EPA Administrator Gina McCarthy talking to Greg Dalton about climate change and public health. This is Climate One. Although McCarthy left EPA at the end of the Obama administration, many agency staffers stayed on, for a time, as the new administration took office. Linda DeChambeau was an EPA staff scientist working on Superfund sites until she left the agency in late 2017 after nearly 20 years. She spoke to Greg about what it was like to work for an agency whose mission was not embraced by the new administrator. One of the first things that Scott Pruitt did as head of the EPA is he uh, issued a Superfund memo. How did that affect the job that you were doing at EPA? Well, a lot of us read that very carefully, and I literally did a word search on it, I remember, to see how many times the words protection or environment were in there, because we immediately had a sense of skepticism. I mean, we all know Scott Pruitt's background, and he sued the EPA 13 times before he was put in charge of it. And so we were like, hmm, what's this going to be all about? And um, it was an odd, odd memo and uh, didn't really come across convincing to a lot of the scientists and didn't really come across strongly, in our opinion, of the, the mission of the agency to protect human health and the environment. So you worked for a year under uh, Scott Pruitt, the Scott Pruitt EPA. What's the feeling? What's the mood like inside? Inside is very somber. The agency had already experienced a lot of uh, hiring freezes under previous administrations. They had already had cuts and, and cutbacks in their jobs, and people were just sort of dumbfounded that this sudden you know, switch where suddenly we had the people we were regulating were now the regulators. So the appointment of Scott Pruitt was rather dumbfounding to most and left a lot of people very almost numb and uh, Some very people somber. might say that a, that a smaller EPA may be a good, a better EPA, that bigger is not necessarily better when it comes to a government agency. That may be true, but it was already a smaller EPA before Scott Pruitt came in. This has been going on for a long time, this attack, this war on EPA. Is not new. I mean, the cuts had been coming slowly over time, so it was pretty hard hit. And you said that uh, people are polishing their resumes, what, lawyers preparing to take the bar exam. Are people planning their uh, planning their exit? Well, I'm in the trenches, and I'm not there now, but from the people I've had coffee with or talked to, and even the days just before I left, I did, in fact, hear that. The term I heard was uh, inflating their lifeboat, and uh, a lot of people are preparing and worried that their jobs are at risk and looking at other options. The agency hired a number of new young people between the election and inauguration day. They hired a number of young people anticipating a hiring freeze coming up. And I've been told that already a handful of those people are, are worried because they're last in and are starting to look at um, you know, leaving the agency as well. You've also said, what, uh, drug tests and other things that you haven't, hadn't seen before in your almost 20 years at EPA. 
didn't have the first experience. We do get um, health tested and drug tested, but a recent team of uh, former EPA employees got in. One of the managers out of headquarters said that people were literally being tapped on the shoulder and taken out for drug tests. And one of the other managers in that meeting with the union said they had never seen that before. And I've never experienced that other than our um, annual. So there's sort of this... um, I don't know, fear-mongering or something going on around that we had not never seen before. There's been a lot written about scrubbing of climate science from the EPA website and, and science un- under attack. Did you experience, were you ever instructed to go light or not use science in a certain way? Not on the issue of climate change so much. I did do some of that work when I was in a leadership development program, and um, I didn't have firsthand knowledge of what they were doing because I was a staff person and a project manager in Superfund. But I did see some of that in the Superfund happening. I was um, told not to have any more community meetings. I was, uh, was suggested that I not finish a community fact sheet that I was working on. And um, in general, there did seem to be a shift where the decision-making was taken away from the scientists and engineers. So in the past, they would come to the project manager and ask for our opinion on things. The lean process, for instance, was discussed with me, and I identified some opportunities where they might want to use that in expediting how quickly the responsible party got us the data, for instance. It had been over a year since the fish had been tested in the area, and we hadn't received the data back. I had suggested we might want to be efficient and expedite in how fast the responsible parties pay back EPA. And um, all those decisions from a scientific or a project manager or an engineer was pushed back up to management as recommendations, and they were not uh, forwarded. And the decision-making was put in the hands of the managers, and from top down, I w- was informed that this process was going forward um, and that my suggestions were not going to be offered up or considered. You went through the Clinton to Bush transition at EPA. How was the Obama to Trump transition different? You know, I was surprised that when we transitioned, it wasn't... Very, it was the administrator, the regional administrator we had at the time, Wayne Nastry, ended up being a very good fit for Region Nine. Surprisingly, so the president appoints the the regional administrators, and um, you know we did see maybe a little bit back off on enforcement and more compliance assistance, but he still had a lot of um, push for the for the science for the mission of the agency to protect human health and the environment this was under president bush this was region nine being california nevada arizona pacific islands pacific northwest Mm -hmm. so it was not as bad as some of us had thought we weathered that storm and it wasn't even that much of a storm i thought the appointed regional administrator you know, did a, a decent job, and the decision-making was still being left to the project managers and those of scientists and engineers in the trenches were still you got to do calling the shots. Yeah. I mean, we were told to, um, you know, tighten our belts, and the term they were throwing around was it's time to do more with less and that we needed to be efficient. And, um, you know, so we, we saw some of that, but it was still up to us to, to do it. And during the second term of the Bush administration, the term literally changed, okay, it's time to do less with less because <laughs> more cuts were coming. And that still meant, you know, do your job, but prioritize. And we were still deciding and letting management know what the priorities were and what less with less meant and what we thought the job should focus on. And then from the Obama to Trump, how does that compare? So that was a big switch. So now it was almost a don't do your job and um, put on your cloaks of invisibility and um, back off and stay tuned. Walk and wink, you say. Yeah. That was a term that one of my colleagues used, and I guess it's been used in industry before, is uh, wink and walk. So, like, it's... it's uh, the site's clean enough, and, and we can move on. Yeah, it, it definitely felt very different. And when did you plan to retire? In about six or seven years. And why did you retire at the end of 2017? Well, that's what the local community group and tribe asked me as well. And really the main answer I have is I couldn't, didn't feel I was able to do my job anymore. 
I've always felt from when I made my career choices very young, high school, even junior high, I always wanted to work for something I could believe in and take care of the planet. And I always felt really good about my job. And I suddenly didn't feel I was where I wanted to be. I felt like I was working for the regulated community. And um, because of this cloak of invisibility that was tossed over me and I didn't feel I could have much impact there anymore. And how do you feel now? You're out a a month or two walking away from an agency where you spent 20 years of your life. How do you feel now? It's been interesting. It's been tough. Just before coming over here, I met with a colleague from work and I really miss the community. EPA really had has a tight-knit group of experts who really have a passion and belief in the work they're doing. The amount of hours that people put in, the amount of things they do over time, and that passion is, you feel it. It's a really lovely place to go to work every morning. I really loved my job. I loved going in there. And uh, so I'm, I'm feeling a little bit of a loss. Do you regret making the jump? I don't have any regrets. The people I've talked to, the things I've heard, unusual training, unusual practices, unusual reprimands people are getting. Um, I'm looking for other work, and uh, I'm sure that will come along, and I, I'm not looking backwards, I'm looking forwards, and I think I will continue to fight for human health and the environment outside of the agency. Another turning point, a fork stuck in the road. Former EPA staff scientist Linda DeChambeau talking to Greg Dalton about leaving the agency after nearly 20 years. Up next, we'll hear about how the oil industry didn't need to wait for the EPA to tell it that its product caused harm. One of the reasons he gave for moving away from oil was this problem with global warming. And that might have been something that the audience didn't quite expect to hear. That's coming up when Climate One continues. We continue now with Climate One. Many people look to James Hansen's 1988 testimony in Congress as the moment when the fact of global warming became public knowledge. But a recently discovered document reveals another prominent scientist warning a gathering of oil executives about the same thing nearly three decades earlier. Benjamin Franta has a PhD in applied physics from Harvard and is pursuing another PhD in history of science at Stanford. His research focuses on the history of climate politics. He spoke to Greg Dalton about a surprising discovery he made deep in an oil industry archive. So Ben, it's 1959, Columbia University, and a man is walking up the steps, iconic steps on Columbia University. Take us to that place. What's happening? I actually looked up what the weather was like that day. So I could say it was sort of a typical day. turned out you had this oil executive, Robert Dunlop. He was uh, a guest speaker for this very special event. This event was the the 100th anniversary, the centennial of the American oil industry. Because it turned out in 1859, almost exactly 100 years before, this very severe looking guy, uh, he struck, well, he he dug deeper than most anybody had tried to dig before, uh, just outside of Titusville, Pennsylvania, and hit a huge amount of oil. And when people saw that, they thought, this is going to be a massive industry. And so a lot had changed in 100 years. By 1959, now you had people like Robert Dunlop who are not this rough and ready uh, wildcatter, but this fairly sophisticated businessman. And so he was there for this big celebration. But it wasn't just him. There were all sorts of other people there, too. Uh, from the transcript of that day, there were about 300 people there. And these were pretty important people. These were government officials. These were industry executives. These were historians and scientists and things like that. So it's 1959, Columbia University, these well-to-do influential people, and Robert Dunlop, the president of Sun Oil, is there. And uh, it's put on by the American Petroleum Institute and the Columbia Graduate School of Business. So what happens? What's the headline at this, at this convening on the 100th anniversary of the oil industry? Yeah, so the headline is what the conference is called, Energy and Man, uh, two of these cosmic forces coming together. Where have we come from with energy? Where are we going? 
what's the energy of the future? And I find it interesting that uh, Robert Dunlop, in his speech, he refers to energy as the prime mover. That's the way he frames it in, in pretty cosmic terms. And so it was part celebration and part looking ahead to the future. Uh, and the future looked pretty bright at the time. And enter Edward Teller. Yeah, so there was a little bit of a, I guess somebody spills the punch sort of thing. Uh, they invite one scientist to speak out of these five speakers. So five people stood up that day to address everybody. Robert Dunlop was one of them. He was the industry representative. There was an historian. And then they chose a scientist, too. And out of all the scientists they could have chosen, they chose Edward Teller. And this sort of makes sense. Edward Teller was pretty popular with industry. He was sort of like a, a man's man of a scientist, you might say. Uh, he was a pretty big proponent of nuclear weapons, nuclear technology in general. He was Doctor St the inspiration for Dr. Strangelove. Yes, there are uh, <laughs> rumors or discussions, yeah, that he was the, the inspiration for Dr. Strangelove. I... I've read that he never really liked that <laughs> comparison, which is understandable. And so he stood up, and his topic was, what's the energy of the future? It might not surprise you that he was uh, promoting the use of nuclear power uh, a great deal in his speech. But one of the reasons he gave for moving away from uh, oil was this problem with climate change, with global warming, with CO2 accumulating in the atmosphere. And that might have been something that the audience didn't quite expect to hear. How did you find this? This was the first time I'd heard this. There have been other reports about 1957, the American Chemical Society, you know, hearing about the greenhouse gas effect. But how did you uncover this? I was at an archive in Delaware, Wilmington, Delaware. It's called the Hagley Museum and Library. And it's the old DuPont uh, manufacturing plant where they used to manufacture gunpowder for a very long time, I think even before the American Revolution. Hmm. So I was there just uh, looking through their materials that they had on the American Petroleum Institute because that's one of my main research interests. And it was the end of the summer. It was my last day in the archive. It was actually my last few hours in the archive. And I thought, well, I, I shouldn't waste this time. I should do something with it. And so I'll, I'll look through these materials that I haven't looked through yet. Although I don't think I'm going to find anything interesting in there. And so I was looking through this transcript of this conference. And I thought, what are the chances that anything interesting will be in here? I thought very little. I was just going through, because I'd kick myself if I didn't go through it. And, oh, Edward Teller. That's kind of interesting. And read through it, and I th thought, wait a second. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? Uh, to be honest, I, I sort of didn't know what to do with it. Uh, I, I kind of sat on it for a few months. And so finally I thought, okay, I think I'll publish this and see if people are interested. And what's been the response? Well, it's been bigger than I anticipated. Um, I think what is so interesting about that story is that it is so poetically perfect in a way. It's not just the fact, because we know people were talking about climate change around then anyway. But it's the poetry, it's the irony of this story that at the industry's birthday party, really, is what it was, that they invite somebody to speak and they say, guess what, according to the latest science, if you keep going on the way you're going, New York City might end up underwater. Here are some of Edward Teller's words that Ben Franta found in the archive. But I would like to mention another reason why we probably have to look for additional fuel supplies. And this strangely is the question of contaminating the atmosphere. When you burn conventional fuel, you create carbon dioxide. The carbon dioxide is invisible. It is transparent. You can't smell it. It's not dangerous to health. So why should one worry about it? 
It has been calculated that a temperature rise corresponding to a 10% increase in carbon dioxide will be sufficient to melt the ice cap and submerge New York. All the coastal cities would be covered, and since a considerable percentage of the human race lives in coastal regions, I think that this chemical contamination is more serious than most people tend to believe. Now, of course... Teller might have been even a little pessimistic uh, or uh, overcautious compared to what we know today. But we always have to think about what was the state of the art of the science at the time. And at this time, this was essentially the state of the art. And for people who don't recall, I mean, Edward Teller went on to champion the Strategic Defense Initiative or Star Wars. He has this huge stature in the Cold War, a father of the hydrogen bomb. So really, it's the resonance of the moment, but also the stature of who the messenger is. That's right. That's right. This is a, an unexpected messenger, really. Now, he goes on, uh, in 1998, there's something called the Oregon Petition, in which he, he walked it back later. So tell us what you know about the Oregon Petition in 1998, which concluded, quote, there's no convincing evidence, end quote, that CO2 or methane will disrupt the Earth's climate. So this is one of those curious cases where uh, somebody moves to uh, skepticism or they're, they're skeptical about being alarmed about the problem in a way that's very contrary to how the rest of the scientific community moved. Now, one speculation I, I could offer is that, like other very prominent scientists during the Cold War, Edward Teller didn't just have science on his mind. He had the role of government in his mind. He may have been worried about government regulation. And maybe that led him to be more skeptical of global warming science later in life than he would have been otherwise. In fact, there's been some other work uh, in this area about the, the story of Cold War, the opposition to climate change really came out of uh, free market ideology. And uh, Naomi Ureskes at Harvard, the Merchants of Doubt, traces this to some ideological roots uh, that and p- people supporting capitalism, concerned about government intervention, more than the simple story on the left, which is, oh, it's financial interest of the oil industry, which I think personally is oversimplified and, and too easy and, and not really nuanced or accurate. Yeah. So there is sort of this debate that goes on about, well, what is the origin and nature of what you might call the climate change counter movement, the very organized effort to delay, block, obstruct efforts to address climate change. And people have made arguments that it's financial in origin, that it's ideological in origin. In my own research, what I have usually found is that there are ideological components to it, but almost always, virtually 100% of the time, those ideological actors are supported financially and their voices are amplified by commercial interests. And so what you have is actually a fusion. I call it like a twin thread that forms a rope uh, between ideology and, and commercial interests. And they're defined primarily by their concentrations of capital, usually accumulated through business, and their recognition that the only entity powerful enough to take that away from them is, in fact, the government. And so they, that group, this sort of plutocratic group, has uh, engaged in a very long effort to dismantle the regulatory state to avoid taxation and so on. And so for them, attacking climate change policies is part of an ongoing project. And sometimes these overlap. For example, uh, the Koch brothers is a great example where plutocratic interests overlap with commercial fossil fuel interests. And that comes to today. You wrote recently in The Guardian that uh, Trump's comments about pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord echoed arguments made for the U.S. not uh, going forward or pulling out of the Kyoto Protocol, which was never ratified in the United States. So tell us how those, those narratives keep recurring and, and coming up. Yeah, so when Trump pulled out of the Paris Agreement, he justified his decision by referencing an economic report that was done by Nira Economic um, Consulting Firm. Now, if you look at who commissioned that report, 
the American Council for Capital Formation, and some of the authors of that report, they're the same groups and the same people that the American Petroleum Institute hired to create econ very similar economic reports to justify uh, the U.S. leaving the, the Kyoto process. So what you see is you see the same arguments, the same talking points, and the same people involved for a very long time. Now, the reason this works is that people don't remember, usually, uh, what happened 15 years before, <laughs> especially if it's not widely advertised, uh, who, who wrote something or who did something. Uh, and so I think one thing that history can really offer to the climate uh, problem, to fixing the climate problem, is to say, look, we have known about this climate issue for a very long time, for many, many decades. Uh, how is it that we have made such uh, unsatisfactory progress in dealing with it? Uh, these are some of the reasons these people, these groups, these talking points, these strategies that create obstruction and delay. And when we see them again, we should recognize them for what they are. Why are they so effective? What I think you have happening here is a story of capture of the government process, capture of the regulatory process. And these stories, these, especially these ideological stories, are often covers that are used to cover financial interests. So, for example, you can have interests who really don't want a carbon tax or they don't want the United States to enter into the Kyoto Protocol. They have to come up with some way of justifying that position. They can do it through ideological language, which people generally accept as being in, a, in the realm of personal opinion, so you can have your ideology and that's fine. It's sort of more respectable than saying, well, I don't want this because this hurts my bottom line. They can also hire economists to uh, write economic analyses that say, this policy will destroy the economy. And now you have a tool to use for the rest of the American population. You can broadcast that to the public and say, look, this is going to destroy your livelihoods. Now, never mind whether that economic analysis is actually true or not. At that point, it doesn't really matter. You have the messaging point, and you can use it to great effect. Greg Dalton has been talking to Benjamin Franta, a PhD candidate in history of science at Stanford. He recently wrote about his research on Edward Teller, the oil industry, and global warming in an article in the Guardian newspaper. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. If you like the program, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes. And join us next time for another conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Climate One is a project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel and Tyler Reed are producers. The audio engineer is Mark Kirshner. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.